uh, you know, you hear stories in the past about people running up to UPS drivers back in the days when uh, PlayStation was really big and, you know, begging to have one and people, you know, going into stores and saying, you know, my kids in their last breath in the hospital and I got to have a PlayStation and, you know, all these different ways of getting toys. I Google this week the top selling toys this Christmas, toys and games. And it was kind of interesting. Number nine was Lego, the 450-piece Lego set. is called the Ultimate Building Set. Now, it's interesting because number 20 on the list is that green tray that all the Legos get built on top of. But uh, number eight was a thing called Elf on the Shelf. Anybody know what that is? Yeah. This is really cool. I was talking to some of our worship team about this earlier today. It's a little elf, and you kind of put it someplace in your house. And it's the elf that lets Santa know whether you've been naughty or nice. And it's kind of a, a thing for kids, you know, he's, he's supposed to report to Santa, and so some people put him on a shelf in their house, uh, some people I've heard have put him on their little ceiling fans and stuff like that, and they say to the kids, hey kids, you know, uh, the elf is watching, and he's going to report to Santa, and it's kind of a, a way of keeping their kids in check. Number four on the list, and I thought this was pretty cool, is a Friends Forever bracelet making kit. And uh, so this, uh, you know, I, I remember making friendship bracelets years ago. In fact, at one of our daughter's parties, we got the things where they can make their own names in it. And uh, that was kind of a big thing. I have not, I have no idea what this is. And if you do, would you just shout it out? Perplexus maze. I think it's like a, a plastic ball that inside has all kinds of things. And when you roll it around, it starts to make a different kind of puzzle or something that then you're supposed to figure out. And then number two on the list is a, a thing called Spot It. I, I think it's something like that old game where, you know, you have these cards down and you turn over a bulldozer and then you turn over a, an angel and you turn them back and then you turn over the next person turns over a bulldozer and they try to turn over a bulldozer and make a match or something like that. So that's number two. But here's number one, and it just, it just shocked me as I read this. And, and, and by a show of hands, would you just let me know if you've ever heard of this game? It's the number one selling game this Christmas, Cards Against Humanity. Anybody heard of it? Yeah. There are 550 cards, 460 of them are white, and the other 90 are black. It's a party game that's, that's advertised this way, for horrible people. You know, unlike most games that you've played, this game is a despicable and awkward, and awkward as you and your friends. And each round, what happens is a player asks a question from the black card, and then everybody else has their, their other white cards, and they try to answer with their funniest card. And there were, I think it was 675 reviews on Amazon about this particular game, which means, you know, to have that many reviews about something is pretty incredible. People say, my grandmother played it with us. We've never had more fun than before. It, it goes for about $49, but because I guess there's a, a drought of the games, they're now selling for $100 if you try to, you know, uh, uh, go on and uh, not Craigslist, but you know, just other ways of trying to get the game. Um, so uh, it's just, by the way, it was 774 customer reviews. You know what the number 12 selling game or toy this, this Christmas is? It's the first expansion edition of Cards Against Humanity. And you know what the number 19 selling 
game is this Christmas? It's the second edition of the expansion cards for, for uh, uh, Cards Against Humanity. So uh, anyway, I think one of the really interesting things about the Christmas season is that uh, we, we start to think about what will make our family and our friends really happy. And even if you wait like my dad used to until Christmas Eve to start your shopping, at least you thought to yourself along the way, I wonder what will make my son or I wonder what will make my daughter or my spouse happy. You know, what would your mom or dad really like for Christmas? What, what would make them very happy? I enjoyed watching my family open presents uh, for, for years. And to me, there was greater joy in watching my kids open presents than there was for me opening my own presents. And I think this time of year tends to sharpen our ability to say, you know, what pleases the people that I love the most. And then you tend to do all you can to come up with that right gift to make them say, this is what I really wanted. Wouldn't that be the greatest expression when when somebody opens your gift? Those Pro V1 golf balls. Uh, Actually, um, we use this skill all the time. As a student, you always study the subject of your professor. You know what they like. You're going to write an essay and you know kind of what they want to hear. Uh, When I was going into eighth grade, one of the things that I did is I did a scouting report on my English teacher who was Mr. Doherty. And I knew that he loved M&M's. So when I got into eighth grade, because I'd done my thing, I knew what pleases him. Some of you do this, you know what pleases your boss. If you want to get anywhere in the company, you kind of learn to do the things that will make him or her happy. When I dated Kathy, I did a lot of research about what would make her happy. And one of the things is, she never wanted to be a pastor's wife. (laughs) I found out later on that just because she owns golf clubs doesn't mean she's ever used them. Uh, But one of the things you do when you're in love, and I hope you still do this after you're married is you figure out what's the language of love for that person. You know, you find out what pleases them. And then you either get it for them or you do it for them. And we all know how to please the people who are most important to us. Now, there's an interesting verse in Ephesians chapter 5.10. You don't need to turn to it. I, I think I can help you memorize it. It says, find out what pleases the Lord. Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord. And I, I, uh, I think it's our responsibility as Christ's followers to say, Lord, what makes you happy? What is your language of love? What pleases you? And I'll either get it or I'll do it. Now, I think it's hard to believe we're only 22 days, not, not 22, how many, nine from ten. How many days away are we from Christmas right now? 25, 10, 16, right? 16 days, okay. Well, I guess the question is, do you, have you done your shopping for the people on your list? And I just want to ask you this, is there a king on your list this Christmas? You know, what in the world would you get for a king? You can probably guess where I'm going to be heading with this, can't you? Uh, today's scripture text, it records for us the birth of Jesus Christ. The king. And that's the whole purpose for our celebration. Now, I put the scriptures 
on your study notes if you have those. If you don't have, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. I might ask this, too. Do you even have Christ on your shopping or your your Christmas list this year? Well, you don't need to worry about coming up with creative ideas because I came up with a list for you that I think will help. Here are the four gifts that we give to a king. The first gift is the gift of recognition. And I just want to ask, is there somebody who would just read this first, these first six verses from Matthew chapter 2? Yeah, Bill, go ahead and stand up and, and in a, your outdoor voice. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and had come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So the first gift is the gift of recognition. And it's interesting to note that in the opening verses of this chapter... Who was it that recognized King Jesus? And who didn't recognize him? I'll start with those group who didn't. You know, the people who should have been the first there, most prepared to recognize the king, and they were taught, caught totally off guard, is the chief priests and the teachers of the law. In other words, the religious folks who were living in Jerusalem at the time, I mean, you would have thought that they would have been first in line at Jesus' manger. For one thing, their prophets had told them hundreds of years before about this coming king. They even quote, you know, these verses to King Herod in verse 6. That's a quote right out of uh, 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 Micah 5.2. Micah had written 700 years before Christ. And so now these people have been reciting this prophecy that this king would someday show up and he was going to show up in nearby Bethlehem. And they knew that a star was going to signal his arrival. In fact, in Numbers chapter 24, the Balaam, he was a prophet, he predicted this. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, a star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king's scepter, will rise out of Israel. And so the religious folks of the day who knew those passages by heart, you would guess that they would have been the ones who would be keeping sharp lookout for the king. They had the prophecies, and they also had the proximity to Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem is just five miles from Jerusalem. I don't know if you know this, from this room here to Westfield Mall is eight miles. So you can see how close Bethlehem is to Jerusalem. And so, you know, they're they're basically... Right on top of it, it shouldn't have been too hard to keep a watchful eye on Bethlehem. And Bethlehem had been that town that had produced a thousand years earlier King David, the town that was widely rumored in all of history to be the birthplace of David's descendants, a king that was going to reign over the throne of Israel forever and ever. And isn't it ironic that the people who were the most religiously inclined, the people who could quote the Bible verses, the people who were living right on top of Bethlehem, 
They didn't even recognize the newborn king. But that's only half the irony. The flip side is the guys who do recognize Jesus as king, they're the least likely to fit the profile. Scholars believe that they were from Persia, modern-day Iran. It was a different country that was many miles away. It was a different religious heritage. I wonder what ignited their recognition that Jesus was the king. Because we've all learned in the past, you know, that they were astrologers. They were magi, and as, as they're called. And, and they maybe were spurred by the astrological calculations and this unusual star in the sky. And it kind of provoked this uh, intense investigation to somehow get answers to this star thing. Now, you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to just tell you a real quick story. Remember when, and we're going to be studying this in, in, in the new year as we follow the Bible. The children of Israel were brought into captivity by the Babylonians. In the book of Daniel, after they brought in, it says, Then the king chief uh, uh, ordered his chief of his court officials to bring to the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and its nobility. Young men without any physical defect, who are handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So now you got Daniel in captivity. He's learning this way. We'll study the story in greater detail, but you'll know that uh, this is also Meshach, Yershach, and Abundagol. I mean, Meshach, uh, uh, Shadrach, and Abednego. And, uh, but... Look what it's verse 17. It says this. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Skipping down, it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about that which the king questioned him, he found these men ten times better than all the magi and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar ends up having a dream. And so he asked the magi to come and interpret the dream. So they say, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. They say, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, if you're true magi, you tell me the dream and interpret it. And they say, there's not a person in your kingdom who can do that. And so he orders all the magi to be killed. But Daniel, when he hears about this, says, hey, go tell the king, you know, I'll come and do it for him. And he tells him his dream and then he interprets the dream. And listen to this. This, when, when the king heard this originally, he said it made him so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Then, then Daniel, and I'm jumping down, said, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. So he goes to the king, and he tells him the dream, interprets it. And then it says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, and he paid him honor and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position, and he lavished many gifts on him, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and he placed him in charge of all the wise men. Isn't that incredible? Six or seven hundred years before Christ is born, God has a way of getting his man into the position, and Daniel is now the head of all the magi, all the wise men. So what would have he been instructing them about? 
he would have been instructing him about the coming of a Messiah. And he would have taken these prophecies that about a star and stuff like that, and he would have been teaching the wise men of Babylon. These men, by the way, were called kingmakers because you couldn't become a king in Babylon unless you had had the training of a wise man. And so, uh, and that raises other things that we'll talk about because uh, when we sing that song, We Three Kings, it's not that they were kings, but they were called the kingmakers. They were the ones you had to have that training. So, the amazing thing about these astrologies is this, that they believed that uh, to some extent that, that there was something special about this star and they were willing to leave their homeland. And so those who were most likely to recognize Jesus right there in Bethlehem didn't. And this group of total strangers from miles away, they identified the baby for who he was. And friends, I just want to suggest to you that this, this is the same thing that happens today. You could grow up in a religious home You can know everything that the Bible says about Jesus. You can be a regular church attender, or at least twice a year. You could have family and friends, and you could be a committed Christ follower. And yet you could fail on a personal level to recognize Jesus for who he really is. And instead of king, he may be playing for you some insignificant role in your life. He may not matter a whole lot to you. And in the meanwhile, and this happens all the time in churches in America today, the least likely people are quietly putting their trust in Christ and they're beginning to follow him. So do you know what's at the top of Jesus' Christmas list this year, I think? He wants you to recognize his rightful place in your life. He wants you to recognize him as the king. And that leads to the second gift, and it's the gift of resignation. And we pick it up in in verse 7 and 8. Could somebody read 7 and 8 for us? Anybody willing to do that? Right there, Craig. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. I'll tell you, it's hard to believe this guy, Herod, he... From the rest of the story, Herod is not really interested in worshiping the child. He's more interested in wiping him out because he's a rival to his rule. And we know that when the Magi failed to report back to him that this king, this wicked king Herod, had every baby boy in the vicinity that was two years of age or or under murdered. Nice guy. I would say he's a little bit insecure. But uh, he protected his throne with kind of a furious intensity. Historians record that he was ruthless in in a lot of different regards. He was a non-Jew who had been appointed by the Roman Senate back in 40 B.C. to rule over Palestine. On the positive side, he's known as Herod the Great. And he's known for having built some incredible things, theaters and fortresses. In fact, I've visited many when I've been in Israel on previous trips, and they're really incredible. It was Herod who rebuilt the temple. It was a wise political move because he thought that he could keep the Jews kind of down by doing something for them. He was politically gifted. He was a clever guy. And uh, the fact that he could stay in power over several um, the monarchy of several Roman emperors is, is pretty amazing. He was an excellent administrator, but he loved power. 
And he wasn't about to give that throne up to anybody. And so over the course of his reign, of, uh, of his reign there, here's some of the statistics, and there's a lot more I could add to this. He murdered his wife, his three sons, a brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, an uncle, and all those babies two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. He even arranged for hundreds of Jewish leaders to be gathered up when he was on his deathbed, and he made the order that as soon as he died, they were to kill those hundred Jewish leaders so that there would be mourning in Jerusalem at his death. This is a way of ensuring that uh, somehow he was uh, recognized. Self-centered, power-hungry, morally depraved. And here's the ugly thing about this. There's a little bit of Herod in every one of us. It cuts across the grain of our human nature to respond to this notion that somehow we don't want somebody else telling us what to do. And I think the real reason that most unbelievers reject Jesus is because they're not interested in resigning the throne of their lives to some other king. Now, they may cover that over with intellectual doubts and questions. I think they sometimes might paper it with indifference. But I think at the root of it is the, res- is the refusal to resign the throne of our lives to Christ. And I'll tell you what, even believers struggle with this, don't we? I do. Having invited Christ into our lives as Savior, we still struggle with relinquishing the control of our lives to Christ. We still struggle with submitting to His priorities, with submitting to Him in our daily decisions, with submitting to His standard of what's right and wrong. Submitting to his demands about how we're supposed to spend our time and how we're supposed to spend our financial resources. Submitting to his expectations as we, as we study and follow his word. Submitting to him as king. Do you know what gift Christ would like from you this Christmas? He'd like your resignation. You know, it is an arrogant affront when you and I snub King Jesus... By letting him know that we plan to rule our own lives. So thank you very much. And I think we can continue to play king in our lives. But that's nothing less than an act of rebellion against the king. And this Christmas, I think we should give all our attempts to to, to usurp his role in our lives and resign the throne and give it to him. Let's determine that we're going to start living a submissive and loyal and faithful and and obedient followers of King Jesus. All right, the third gift is the gift of reverence. We pick up the story in verse 9. Would somebody read verse 9? Karen? Just 9? 9 through 11. 11 11a, sorry. Thanks. That's it. And literally, in, in the original language there, it's they, we use the word bow down, but they fell on their faces on the ground prostrate. Now, if that seems like a pretty unusual act to us, it's probably because we're products of a culture that is not very reverential. We're a little more laid back. We're a lot more casual. We're informal. The only reason I wore a tie today is because it's Christmas month. I've got so many Christmas ties, I figure I'd better wear at least, you know, three Sundays a tie. Uh, But we're not into ceremony, are we? 
I was reminded a few years ago of this when I was attending one of Handel's Messiah concerts. And at the conclusion of, of Handel's Messiah is the chorus, the Hallelujah Chorus. But before the choir and the orchestra began this number to start the concert, it was interesting because the choir director said to the audience, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to let you know that when we get to the Hallelujah Chorus, it will be proper for you to stand when that chorus begins. And it seemed kind of, well, what do you want to stand for? Well, it didn't seem unusual to King George back in 1743. George Frederick Handel, who wrote the Messiah, he was a struggling composer, and he'd be given the script by a wealthy friend who wanted it set to music. It was the story of the life of Christ. So Handel secluded himself in his apartment in London, where he became so absorbed in his work that he rarely left his room and hardly stopped to eat a meal. 260 pages later of orchestrated manuscript, he completed in 24 days. It's been described as the greatest feat in the history of musical composition. And the Messiah, as it was entitled, initially was to be a a benefit concert to raise money for people who were in what was called debtor's prison. By then, uh, uh, this had become kind of popular, so the King of England attended one of its performances. And when the first notes of that triumphal hallelujah chorus rang out, the king spontaneously rose to his feet, and following royal protocol, all the rest of the audience rose to their feet as well, which began this tradition that has lasted for centuries. I think it's interesting that King George II, himself a king, stood in reverence, honoring an even greater king. Just as the Magi in today's text bowed down and worshipped this very same king. He deserves the gift of reverence. He deserves the gift of worship. He deserves the gift of praise. I was looking through one of my dad's old uh, Christmas messages, and he pointed out something about the Magi when they found Christ. And I'm quoting him. He said, they did not curiously examine him as if he was the solution of an intellectual puzzle. No, they worshipped him as their king and their God. And friends, I just want to remind you that this is the central focus of our Sundays here at Water's Edge. How are you doing in this area of worship and praise and reverence? Are you inclined to worship? Or are you a little more resistant? This Christmas, King Jesus wants the gift of your reverence. He wants your worship. And let me just take this a step further, because 70 minutes on Sunday morning is hardly adequate Not for King Jesus. And so I hope that all year long you'll be giving Jesus the gift of your reverence and of your worship. And that every day you'll find a time to thank him and to praise him and to listen to him through his word. Here's the final gift on our list. It's the gift of resources. We pick it up at verse 11. Could somebody read there through the the end of the text? 11 and 12. Yeah, go ahead, Ted. By the way, this is a good place to correct what I think is some mistaken notions about the wise men. For starters, they, as I said before, they were not kings, uh, so much for the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Next, they probably didn't visit Jesus on the stable with the shepherds the night he was born. 
I think that's a misconception that people have. Verse 11 tells us that when they arrived in Bethlehem, they arrived at a house which now Joseph and Mary were situated in. And so Jesus was... Uh, was being referred to not as an infant, but as a child, which probably means that he was at least several months old. And the very fact that Herod, in identifying the time that the the star showed up, would have every kid two years of age and under killed, means that this is probably later than, than the night that Jesus was born. And there's absolutely nothing in the text that would suggest that the, the Magi tried to smoke a rubber cigar. But... Uh, you didn't do that when you were a kid? We, Three Kings of Warrior and are trying to smoke a rubber cigar. It never, okay. Uh, anyway, never mind. That's for people my generation. Uh, and the other thing is we don't know for certain how many wise men there were. The Bible doesn't say. We, we guessed three because they brought three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some scholars speculate that there could have been up to 40 or 50 of them, along with their servants and maybe even a military escort, which makes you understand now why Herod was so worried as the king when he sees this whole entourage come in. And uh, when the Bible says in, in uh, the Lucan account, when he trembled, it's the word for agitate like a watch machine going back and forth. And by the way, how would we get 70 people on our coffee tables at Christmas? So, now are these gifts intended to communicate some hidden meaning? That will be another message someday. But the point is that these gifts were costly. They were expensive. Verse 11 refers to them as treasures. They were gifts that were fit for a king. And the question for us this morning is this. Will we give King Jesus... This Christmas, anything that costs us something. Will our resources of time and energy and of money and of attention be lavished on him, or will we just give him some token things? I've been amused as I've been reading about the incredible lengths that parents go to get some of these hot-selling toys and games for kids. Uh, I mentioned that earlier, how Internet bidding has just... Been going uh, one a couple years ago. I remember with PlayStation, they were going for two thousand uh, dollars. It's rumored that some people have flown to Europe to get one, uh, and in places where there was a limit, one per customer. Uh, I've heard that people would hire homeless people to come and stand in line so that they could get more than one. So uh, there's different lengths that we'll go. We laugh about it. But what if Christ followers showed that same determination to bring the right gift to King Jesus? God once said through the prophet Malachi to his people that to bring him a token offering was something that he detested. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and right, it's right before Matthew. And God said, when you bring me an offering, an animal from your flock, let it be the best you have to give. And then God adds these words in verse 11. For I am a great king. Do you hear what he's saying? A great king deserves great gifts. And if our resources this Christmas are all being spent on ourselves and on our families, what does that say about what we think about the greatness of our king? I know many of you have taken to heart the fact that the first part of your income belongs to God. It's your way of showing your obedience to Him. It's your way of saying, you own it all, God, and this 10% just says, you know, this is a token of what, what you've given to me. 
And my prayer is that every one of us who is a Christ follower who will understand that without obedience, it's really tough to live the Christian life. But frankly, I don't see this as an obligation. It's just not something that we have to do out of obedience. It's something that we do as a way of saying, thanks, God. Thanks for what you mean in our lives. Thanks for what you've done for us. So let me just remind you, he's a great king. And this Christmas, he wants the gift of recognition. And if you've been keeping him at arm's length, he wants you to recognize him for who he is and invite him into your life. And he wants the gift of resignation. He wants you to move off the throne. You're not the king anyway. So quit quit usurping his role. Determine that you're going to grow in obedience to King Jesus. And he wants the gift of your reverence. He wants your worship. He wants you to enter into worship. Not just as a spectator, but as a participant with other believers. And to carve out time during the week to worship him. And he wants your gift of resources. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But even more importantly, everything you've got. And that's why I entitled the message today, Gold, Frankincense, and Me. Let's pray together. Lord God, I want to thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. And in this Christmas season, we especially want to make him King of our hearts and our lives. Thank you for the reminder today that whether we do or we don't, he still remains King. But I know that there's some benefits to be had for those who will willingly submit their lives to him. As we go into our homes and and our work this coming week, would you open our ears to hear what you're saying in the things that happen to us and in the people that we meet? Would you open our eyes to see the needs of people around us? Would you open our hands to do our work well? And would you open our lips to tell others the good news of Jesus and to bring comfort and happiness and laughter to other people. So we go from this place rejoicing and celebrating Christmas with a true focus on our King, your Son, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.